0: I am not the usual pastor here. I am not a pastor at all. Uh, I'm Jesse Coleman. I'm uh, one of the elders here. And uh, I spoke with our pastors, uh, Mark and Dan. And I asked if I could preach a sermon at the very end of this series that we're going through called Living Faithfully in a Shifting Culture. Uh, So I'd like to start that off with a little story, a personal story. first of all, you working on getting the slides up? Okay. No, that's good. That's good. I don't need them for now. Okay. Around ten years ago, uh, I finished school and I started looking for my first job. I found one on Craigslist, which I promise you was a thing back in 2010. Uh, (laughs) I had multiple interviews, uh, one where they took me to lunch at Applebee's, not to brag, but I got a job offer and I accepted, right? Uh, Things were looking up. Uh, Now, the pay wasn't great, but, you know, I was just starting out. And uh, I seemed to have strange little conflicts with my boss here and there, but, you know, I was just starting to get to know everyone. And, And about seven weeks in, I had a meeting with them about how I needed to improve my performance over the next two weeks, but, you know, I figured that they were just helping me learn. So meanwhile, with my new paycheck in hand, me and my young wife started to look for a new house, I still have a young wife, by the way. I have to say that because she's here. But it's also true. Um, So I I was, you know, we were looking for a house so we could move out of my in-law's basement. Um, We found the perfect little house, but right as we were about to put an offer on the house, I get pulled into my boss's office at 5.30 on a Friday, and they tell me they're letting me go. I got fired. And I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure that the lights in my in-law's basement were just a little bit dimmer that Friday evening. (laughs) We had to let go of the cute little house that we were close to buying, and, and it felt like we were back to square one. And I remember during that time of doing lots of praying, I was asking God what his plan was for me. I was wondering how in the world I could have been so dense and gotten myself fired after two months. But you know what? God did have a plan a better plan. It took me about a month, but I found another job. It was a better job with better pay and a better location, with better management, with work that was more focused on the thing that I had uh, gone to college for. And uh, and me and Raquel, we found another house, uh, which I think is in a better location. So in looking back, I look at that experience and I see that God used that job loss for good in my life. I learned what it was like to lose a job and I never would have gotten a better job that quickly if I hadn't been fired. I probably would have stayed at that lousy company for two years. (laughs) I I won't speak the company's name, I think, because we're live. Otherwise, i tell you all about it. Um, (laughs) but, But I learned that God had a plan for my life, even if I don't know what it is. And even if things don't turn out exactly the way I would expect. So... Like I said, we've been going through this sermon series called Living Faithfully in a Shifting Culture, and the focus of this series has been on the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And and for the most part, this concluded with last week's sermon, where Elijah was swept up into heaven and his protege Elisha took his place. Today's sermon is centered around the same time period, but instead of focusing on the prophets, we're going to focus on the kings. Specifically, it focuses on the rise and fall of the Amride dynasty. And this Amride dynasty was a wicked dynasty that led Israel into some of the worst collective sin ever committed. But in the center and at its core, this story in today's sermon is about how God has a plan, how God keeps his promises, and how God works in the lives of flawed people to accomplish his perfect will even when it doesn't look like that's what's happening at the time. So, let's get started with the story of Zimri. I'm going to turn this on. See, I have my own remote here. It's actually a full keyboard. you like it? I'm going to see if it works. Thank you! Thank you! See, I was feeling very, very, you know, not confident, but thank you for liking my giant keyboard. Alright. (laughs) what'd you say thank you yes that's what i want yes so slide three we're going to talk about zimri zimri's story doesn't receive much attention in the bible it's just a little blurb but we learn that zimri was a charioteer serving under king elah all right elah was the king of the northern nation of israel and and he inherited it from his father but it seems like elah was more Interested in liquor than leadership? Because the Bible says that King Elah was drinking himself drunk in the capital. So Zimri, the charioteer, decides, I should be king. So Zimri approaches the house where King Elah is drunk and defenseless, and Zimri strikes him down and kills him. Now, you may think that Zimri is simply an opportunist who's looking for power, but in fact, this assassination was the fulfillment of prophecy. See, years before, God had sent a prophet to pronounce judgment on Elah's father because Elah's father had led Israel into the sin of idol worship. This prophet prophesied the very massacre that Zimri carried out. Now, Zimri is king, but it will not last long because as soon as Zimri places himself on the throne, the army of Israel, who's off fighting the Philistines like they do, Uh, They did not want Zimri as their king, so instead they named Omri, the commander, as king instead of Zimri. They decide they want their own commander in charge instead of this guy Zimri who just, you know, did a conspiracy in the capital. And so the army begins to march back in order to seize the monarchy. And as the army approaches, King Zimri realizes that he doesn't have a lot going for him. The Bible says that Zimri saw the army approaching, and he retreated into his citadel, and he set it on fire. And as Zimri's house burned, it collapsed over him, and he died after just seven days on the throne. Zimri's reign was short, and it was pathetic. And after Zimri, so began the reign of Omri in the northern nation of Israel. So. Let's ask some questions. 1. Was Zimri called by God? Well, in one sense, yes. He wasn't audibly called that we know of, but the Bible says that he places that God places kings and rulers over us, and Zimri's assassination was the fulfillment of prophecy. Was Zimri used by God? Yes, absolutely. The Bible makes it clear that Zimri was carrying out the judgment of God against Ela's dynasty Three was Zimri a good king? No, not at all the Bible says that he was a wicked king and and for someone who only got a week to rule It's amazing that he was able to accomplish anything at all in my opinion But you know he must have signed a lot of executive orders on his first day in office because you know his legacy stands he was evil nonetheless So, here's a question. Does the fact that Zimri was an evil king diminish the work that God used him for? No, not at all. God works in and through evil people all the time. And finally, does God have a plan and is God in control? Yes and yes. God makes his plans known through prophets and God carried out his plan exactly like he said. So, Frankly, there's enough right here to finish the sermon today. You got a short sermon, some might call it a Zimri sized sermon. Right? It's filled with politics, war, assassination, conspiracy, and you got a lesson about how God is in control and about how God uses evil people to accomplish his will. But we're not finishing here because I promised you the rise and the fall of the Amri dynasty, and we just talked about the rise. So, let's continue. Now, chances are, if you've heard of Zimri, you may have heard of Omri, but if you haven't heard of Zimri, you probably have not heard of Omri either. And I'll admit, it's a bit pretentious for me to name the Sermon the Fall of the Omride Dynasty. Omride stands for Omri. It's about Omri's children, so just get that out of the way. And, and even though Omri's name is in the title of the Sermon, we aren't going to talk much about Omri. So right now, I will give you four Fun facts about Omri. You can decide whether or not they are, in fact, fun. One, it says that after Zimri's suicide, Omri and his army had to deal with another rebellion for five years, but he eventually won. Two, Omri was, by all indications, a successful military leader. Three, Omri relocated the capital of Israel from a place called Tirzah to a place called Samaria. And four, Omri, like the kings before him, was also wicked. In fact, he was more wicked than all the kings before him because he continued the idol worship of Israel, just like the kings before him, but also because he entered into a strategic alliance with the Sidonians through the marriage of his own son Ahab to the Sidonian king's daughter, whose name was Jezebel. That's right. Now, If you've been paying any attention in the last two months of sermons, you know that Ahab himself was a most wicked king. And that's because Ahab and Jezebel bring the worship of the Sidonians to Israel, which is Baal worship. And while Baal worship probably existed organically in Israel in various ways before, Ahab and Jezebel bring it in force right? This is state-sponsored religion, right? With priests and top cover and funding. And let's be clear, Baal worship is particularly despicable. I don't want to get into a lot of details, but Baal was supposed to bring fertility to fields, and in order to convince Baal to give life, you must give him life. So the worshipers of Baal would draw their own blood for Baal. They would offer human sacrifices, child sacrifices, and So they wouldn't have to give up their own children. The temple prostitutes would bear the children that would be used for the child sacrifices. All to say, Baal worship was a dark, horrible, and abominable practice that was repugnant to the Lord. I can't state that clearly enough, and that can't be any more important in understanding the whole arc of this story. But don't think for a second that the evils of King Ahab stopped at the borders of the northern nation of Israel. See, it extended to the south, too. And this is something that I didn't always realize until I really started looking into it. See, the nation of Israel had been split for around 50 years. And while Ahab rules in the northern kingdom of Israel, Jehoshaphat reigns in the southern kingdom of Israel. And while Jehoshaphat is a good king. He made one very big mistake. He made an alliance with King Ahab in the form of a marriage between the two kingdoms, between his son, Jehoram, and Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And Athaliah is basically a Jezebel junior because she brought the Baal worship to the southern kingdom just like it was in the northern kingdom. It was state-sponsored. It was funded and it was protected. And so the feasts and the celebrations and the orgies and the sacrifice and the violence of Baal worship thrived in Israel and Judah during the time of the Omride dynasty. And I'd like to point out something else that shows how close-knit the families of the northern and the southern kingdoms became to the point where it actually becomes a little confusing when you're reading through it, all right? Look at these slides. Here we go. Ahab had a son named Ahaziah, who later becomes king of the north after his father dies. Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, and Jehoram of the south have a son, and they name him Ahaziah, presumably after his uncle from the north. And both Jehoram and his son Ahaziah become kings of the south. Ahab and Jezebel of the north have another son, and they name him Jehoram, presumably after his son-in-law from the south. And Jehoram, son of Ahab and Jezebel, actually becomes king of the north after his brother Ahaziah dies. Are you following this? There is a period of time where the kings of the north and the south are not only closely related to each other, they have the same names. Ahab of the north is succeeded by Ahaziah, who's succeeded by Jehoram. Jehoshaphat is succeeded by Jehoram, who's succeeded by Ahaziah. Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehoram, Ahaziah, it's one big happy family. And they all worship faith. So, the wickedness that is infecting Israel was deserving of God's judgment, and God's judgment does indeed exist. But the triggering event, the event that prompts the judgment that would end the Amri dynasty, isn't actually the Baal worship. It's because of what Ahab did with Naboth's vineyard. And since we've already had a sermon about Naboth's vineyard, I don't want to go through it in detail. I just want to sum it up in case you're not familiar. So Ahab is sitting in his palace in Jezreel, a sort of remote palace for northern kings. It's kind of like Ahab's Mar-a-Lago if you will. It's a resort to get away from it all. And and while Ahab looks out of his window in Jezreel, he sees a very nice vineyard. And he decides that he wants this very nice vineyard. But the owner, a man named Naboth, cannot and will not sell the vineyard to Ahab. So Ahab walks away back to his castle. He sulks and his wife Jezebel says, what's wrong? And he tells her. And she says, so what? You're the king. Just accuse Naboth of something. Kill him and take his vineyard. It's easy, and that is just what they do. They murder Naboth and his whole family in cold blood under the guise of their laws, and they take his vineyard just because they can. And this action, this wicked event, is the beginning of the end for the Amrite dynasty. After Ahab takes the vineyard, God sends the prophet Elijah to Ahab, and Elijah tells him, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? This is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. I'm going to bring disaster on you. Your descendants will be cut off, and Ahab and every last male in Israel, slave or free, will be gone. And also, concerning Jezebel, the dogs will devour Jezebel in the wall of Jezreel so here is where ahab does something unusual he repents to god and he humbles himself and in response god actually shows mercy to ahab and promises that the destruction of the amri dynasty will be delayed it'll still happen but ahab will not live to see it so rather than watch a usurper take over the kingdom ahab rules a bit longer dies in battle And then the Amri dynasty continues for another 12 years. Now, after Ahab's death, his son Ahaziah reigns for two years and dies, and then his other son Jehoram begins to reign. I've talked about this. And at the same time, you remember, we have the the southern kings from the same family with the same names, King Jehoram of the south. And then he reigns for a bit, and then his son Ahaziah of the south takes his place. So we have Jehoram in the north, Ahaziah in the south. And also during this time, Elijah the prophet has been taken up into heaven. We learned about that last week. And Elisha the prophet has taken his place. And now the stage is set for the fulfillment of God's justice. At this time, around 841 B.C., Jehoram of the north and Ahaziah of the south are in an alliance fighting against the king of Syria. That's what their little... Text bubbles are talking about there. And their armies are encamped in Syrian territory at a place called Ramoth-Gilead. So, please remain seated. But I'd ask you to read with me from 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1-13. through 13. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand. And go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. And go and have him rise from among his fellows, and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil, and pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel, and then come out of the door, and flee Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he rose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out, the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. That's the word of the Lord. Now, based on this passage alone, I would like you to try and get a picture of Jehu in your head. Okay, what can we divine about Jehu based on what we've read about him? Think about this. Elisha tells this young boy to lead Jehu into a private room, anoint him, declare him king, and run. Right? And then when Jehu steps out, his fellow commanders, who presumably saw the young man book it as fast as he could, are willing to immediately lay down their garments and declare that Jehu is king. I think it's pretty clear that jehu was terrifying right this guy was not to be messed with (laughs) and and jehu wastes no time let me tell you he mounts his chariot and and he rides from the battlefront back to jezreel which remember is the mar-a-lago of the omri dynasty and who should be waiting at jezreel but the kings of israel and judah jehoram of the north and ahaziah of the south So, now, as Jehu approaches Jezreel, see, there he is on his chariot, right? A watchman spots him, and the watchman tries to send out horsemen and get the message and bring it to the kings, but Jehu just doesn't stop. And I love this, because the watchman goes back to the kings, and he says, I sent two horsemen, but the chariot still approaches. And the charioteer is driving a lot like Jehu, for he drives furiously. How do you like that? I do you know anyone like that? You know, maybe you're driving along the Fairfax County Parkway and you see someone weaving in and out of traffic and you're like, oh, that must be Diana. Only Diana drives like that. <laughs> I, I hope you know that my, my side goal in, in everything I say at the sermon is to see what it takes to get uninvited from my in laws for lunch. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, King Jehoram and his nephew. King Ahaziah hop into their chariots and they head out to the castle to meet Jehu. And they meet him, get this, at Naboth's vineyard. The very same vineyard that Ahab and Jezebel stole when they unjustly accused Nahab, Naboth of murder, or of blasphemy, sorry, and then they murdered him. This was the very same vineyard where Elijah had pronounced judgment on God's family. And now, Ahab's son and grandson of Ahab's blood are standing on that ground. So King Jehoram says, is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu says, what peace can there be so long as the whoring and the sorcerers of your mother Jezebel are so many? And at this point, you can probably feel the blood drain from Jehoram's face, right? Because he knows Jehu. He knows that Jehu is terrifying. And it has suddenly become clear that Jehu is not there for peace. So it says that Jehoram reigned about and fled, and he cried, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength, and he shot King Jehoram between the shoulders, and he died. And even though Ahaziah tries to flee, Jehu kills him too. And you discover something really interesting at this point in in the story. Jehu says to his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, listen to this, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this ground. Do you get that? Jehu knew. He didn't just hear about the judgment against Ahab when he was anointed. (coughs) He had known for 14 years from back when Elijah had confronted Ahab at Naboth's vineyard. Jehu was part of the army back then. He'd heard the prophecy, and he had remembered it up to this point. (coughs) All right. So, now, Jehu walks into Jezreel, (coughs) and who should be waiting for him but Jezebel. So Jezebel has put on some makeup, She does her hair, and as Jehu approaches, she looks out her window, and she says, and I love this, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Right? You catch that? She called him Zimri. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to tell the story of Zimri at the beginning of this passage, because Zimri, like Jehu, was also a charioteer. Zimri, like Jehu, also decided that he would kill the king in and then take his place so this is a burn from jezebel saying yeah you may have killed the kings but your reign is going to be short and pathetic but then but then jehu who's again this terrifying commander he looks out the window or he looks up the window to where jezebel is and he says is anyone on my side in there and it says a few eunuchs look out and he says throw her down and they do they throw her out the window all the evil she spread after all the power she accumulated she was cast out by her own servants and as she hit the ground she died and after jehu goes inside the palace and gets some food you know all that killing made him hungry he tells his servants go get the body so we can bury her she is royalty after all but when they go out all they find is her skull her feet and the palms of her hands because the scavenging dogs had already eaten the rest of her body, just like Elijah's prophecy foretold. Now, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because there's so much here, and I've already cut so much, and, you know, and, and it's hard to do a sermon, really. Um, but I'm going to skip ahead and tell you that Ahab had 70 sons in all cities all over Israel, and Jehu has them all killed in fulfillment of prophecy. He also kills more of the southern king Ahaziah's family. But for Jehu's final act of judgment, he turns to the darkest legacy of the Amri dynasty, which is the house of Baal. And he does this with trickery. See, Jehu assembles all the people and he says to them, Ahab served Baal a little, I will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, bring them into the house of Baal so that they fill it and then we're going to have a great sacrifice to offer. And indeed, all the worshippers of Baal come, filling the house of Baal from one end to the other. But Jehu had no intention of making an offering to Baal. Instead, while the prophets of Baal conduct their despicable worship inside, Jehu had stationed 80 men outside. And at his order, Jehu's men storm into the house of Baal and kill everyone inside. And when they are done, they go into the inner room of the House of Baal, they pull out the central idol, and they burn it down. And they demolish the House of Baal, and they turn it into a latrine. So here we are. Jehu has now wiped out nearly everyone, except... Who's left? Athaliah! That's right, there's one piece of the Amri dynasty that wasn't gone yet, Right? Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, is still around, and she is still a Baal worshiper. She is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She has somehow lived outlived all of her parents, her husband, and her son. And as a result, Athaliah actually rules over Judah for six more years. However, there is hope in the south, too, because King Ahaziah had a son, a baby boy named Joash. And while Athaliah reigns from the palace, young Joash is hidden away in the temple where he learns about the good things of God. And when Joash is around seven years old, the priests and the guards march him to the front of the temple in Jerusalem, blow the trumpets, put a crown on his head, and declare, Joash is king! Queen Athaliah hears this, runs to the temple and shouts treason! But it's too late. The captain sees her, they put her to death, and the people tear down the house of Baal in the southern capital of Jerusalem. And now, finally, the fall of the Amri dynasty, that dynasty that stretched from north to south, the dynasty of Baal, is really, truly gone. And the people had rest. Yay! All right. So, do you remember those questions that I asked at the beginning about Zimri? Let's ask them again, only about Jehu. Yep. Was Jehu called by God? Yes. God used Elisha to send a prophet to Jehu and anoint him as king. Jehu was the fulfillment of prophecy. Two. Was Jehu used by God? Absolutely. God's judgments against the Amri dynasty had, had been laid out, and Jehu fulfills those proph- prophecies, in this case, knowingly. So, Was Jehu a good king? No, he wasn't. Not at all. In fact, the Bible says he was an evil king because he led Israel in the sin of worshiping the golden calves. I mean, mind you, he got rid of the Baal worship, but he didn't stop the other idol worship that was in Jerusalem. And for that, he is still remembered and marked as an evil king. So, does the fact that Jehu is an evil king diminish the work that God used him for? Not at all. God works in and through evil people all the time. And to me, I think this is a really important takeaway from this story and from this entire period of history, is that God uses evil people to accomplish his will. You see this with Zimri, you see this with Jehu, and and I think the fact that God uses evil people to accomplish his will is is an important lesson for Christians today. Right? I mean, think of current politics and all the political polarization we see. In this environment, it's really tempting to see the other side, or a political component as, or sorry, opponent, as completely evil. And therefore, to see your side as the good one, right? The brave warrior standing in the face of evil. So if we were to say, compare a current political leader or candidate to a king of Israel, I'll do a little exercise. I want you to all Think of a current political leader or candidate in your head. You can pick whoever you like. Got it? Yes? Okay? Good. We might want to think of that person that you're thinking of as a King David, as a man after God's own heart who clearly made some mistakes in his life. Or we might want to think of that person as a King Ahab, right? A wicked person who is clearly horrible with maybe a rare redeeming moment. Have you ever considered, though, that maybe the person you're thinking of is a Jehu, right? Because Jehu, it wasn't always black and white with him. Was Jehu evil? Yes, he was. But he was an evil king who was anointed by God's prophet, right? He knew God's judgment on Ahab's line, and he faithfully carried it out. I mean, it it may have aligned with his own self-interest, too, but he followed God's calling nonetheless, So with our current leaders, I think it's easy to argue that they are either accomplishing God's will on earth or standing against God and dishonoring him with their governance or behavior. But honestly, it may be both. And as Christians, we need to remember that God can and does use all kinds of people to accomplish his will. And sometimes we don't know exactly what that will is. And finally, this doesn't water down God's standards at all. And it doesn't absolve our leaders of their sins in any way. Both of those things are true. So now, one last question, which I asked about Zimri, and I will ask again about Jehu. Does God have a plan, and is God in control? Yes, and yes. And on this last point, I would like to remind you of Pastor Hayes' sermon around a month ago. It was about Elijah after the wicked queen Jezebel orders for him to be hunted down and killed. Elijah runs far south, farther down than the northern kingdom, farther down than the southern kingdom, all the way to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, Elijah feels incredibly alone. Elijah wishes for death. And yet in that moment, God reveals himself to be there with Elijah, and God comforts him. It's a really beautiful, profound story where God tells Elijah about the plans that he has. But do you remember that God tells Elijah some very specific things? One of the things he says is, You shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. This is the first place that Jehu is ever mentioned in the Bible. This is at the height of Ahab and Jezebel's reign. This is 17 years before Jehu would be anointed king. This is probably around three years before Ahab and Jezebel killed Naboth in that vineyard. And I think that this fact, the fact that God names Jehu as the next king this far in the past, really highlights God's mercy. It really highlights God's mercy. And I'll tell you what I mean. Let's walk through the timeline, okay? One, God tells Elijah to anoint Jehu on Mount Sinai. Two, A couple years later, Ahab murders Naboth and steals his vineyard. And at that point, Elijah confronts Ahab and tells him that his dynasty will be overthrown. And we've already found out that Jehu was around at that time. Jehu was in the army and God had already named him as king. So I want you to think about the fact that the end of the Amri dynasty could have been right then. Right after the murder of Naboth, God had set all the pieces in motion, and all Elijah had to do was carry out God's instructions. The people were there. But what happened? Well, obviously it wasn't in God's plan, but specifically, Ahab repented, right? He humbled himself before God, and God, in turn, showed mercy by delaying the overthrow. Jehu stayed in the army, and Ahab stayed on the throne because Ahab humbled himself, and I think that it's a really good time to bring up Psalm 51. Right? This is this is in Psalm 51. Uh, I'll read this to you. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And speaking of kings and their evil deeds, you know who wrote that psalm? David wrote that psalm. You know when David wrote that psalm? Right after he slept with a married woman and had her husband killed. And after a prophet of God confronted him. David, in this case, is not too different from Ahab. The point is, in this story, in the rise and fall of the Amrite dynasty, we see God's justice and judgment display. Yes, absolutely we do. God's justice is shown in the judgments against the false worship of the golden calves. God's justice is shown in the judgments against Baal, in in the worship of Baal in the northern and southern kingdoms. God's justice is shown after the judgments of Ahab and Jezebel when they murdered Naboth. But we also see God's mercy. God's mercy is shown to Elijah as God sends Elisha to take his place. God's mercy is shown to Joash, as he's protected in the temple of Jerusalem. And God's mercy is even shown to the wicked king Ahab, as the judgment is delayed. And finally, talking about God's promises, we see God's promises shown as he gives comfort to Elijah on Mount Sinai showing Elijah that he has a plan for Israel, and most importantly, that God keeps his promises going all the way back to King David, where God says that the deliverer of Israel, the true king of Israel, would come through his line, and not even the evils of the Amrite dynasty could get in the way of that. And this leads us to God's ultimate promise, the promise of a deliverer. Jesus of Nazareth, a son of David and of Joash and, interestingly enough, Ahab and Jezebel, who came to deliver us from our sins. And there is no fuller display of God's justice, God's mercy, and the fulfillment of God's promises than Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. It's the wrath of God poured out in the fullness of punishment on Jesus, it's the mercy of God covering the people whose sins merited death, and it's the promises of God to mankind as he reconciles his lost children back to himself. So we learn today about the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms, and yet Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom above all kingdoms, whose reign would never end. And it's the promise, that promise, that we can cling to even when the world looks lost around us. Because God has a plan and God is in control. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for giving us the scriptures of First and Second Kings so that way we can look into the history of the nation of Israel. Lord, we see that, that you work in and through and with people and rulers and kingdoms all the time. And yet we see the wickedness that pervades in every society and in every place. Lord, thank you for keeping your promises even when we sin. Lord, thank you for sending a deliverer through Jesus, so that way we would not have to pay the punishment for our sins. Lord, thank you for keeping your promises and showing us that you are a God who keeps And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, we're going to respond with a song. Please stand.